Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo and I have a great interview for you tonight for World Autism Awareness Day. This is the genesis of brain allergies. Is there a subgroup of autism um, where there is an allergy of the brain? And that is the topic I will be discussing tonight with my guest. I'm so thrilled to have him back, uh, Dr. Theo Theoretis. Dr. Theoretis is professor of pharmacology, professor um, of pharmacology, internal medicine, and biochemistry, and director of the Molecular Immunopharmacology and Drug Discovery Laboratory at Tufts University. He has over 20 years of research into mast cells and brain inflammation, 300 published papers, and many patents. Um, Dr. Theoretis has shown that mast cells are one of the master regulators of the immune system, directing um, the immune system response and controlling inflammation. Dysfunction of the mast cell um, has been found to be the source of many autoimmune diseases and conditions, and his research is now providing a look, a new look, um, at the autistic brain. So I am thrilled to have Dr. Theoretis joining me again. How are you? Uh, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be on uh, your uh, radio show again uh, today, and I'm very excited about uh, our discussion. You know, I'm so excited. You know, we touched base a few weeks ago about um, coming on because this is really an important day. Um, you know, autism, the, the numbers are staggering. And, um, you know, we need to have awareness, and we need to have not only awareness of the disorder, but we have to have awareness for parents. I mean, parents are very well aware of autism, but I don't think they're aware that, um, you know, there can be so many different reasons that their children are having the challenges that they're having. Um, You know, genetics, they say, accounts for only 5% of those affected with autism. Yet -hmm. there is a connection between um, an immunological mast cell disorder. It's called mastocytosis, um, which my daughter, well, my daughter has mast cell activation disorder, which is how I found you. So there is definitely a connection between mastocytosis and autism. And, um, you know, I would consider the numbers staggering. One in ten children with autism also have a mast cell disorder disorder. And the rate in the general public is only approximately one in a hundred. So mast cells are found in every part of the body. And we now know that that also includes the brain. So can you tell us just briefly what mast cells are? Sure. Uh, Let me, if uh, uh, I'm allowed to clarify a statement, it is actually one in 10 children that have the disease mastocytosis, they have autism, not the other way around. Otherwise, it would have been way too many. So while the general population, one in 
uh, in a hundred children as uh, autism in the mastocytosis community. Uh, one in ten children with mastocytosis have autism. So, okay. having said that, um, the the mast cell, as you very appropriately uh, called it, has now become a master uh, regulator. So it derives from the bone marrow. Uh, it leaves the bone marrow and goes in all the tissues of the body. It does not circulate like the other white blood cells. And uh, it is found also in the brain, even though uh, the mast cell has been associated with allergic reactions and the brain doesn't get allergic reactions. So the question has always been, what do the mast cells do if they are not only involved in allergy? And as you know, you will know, and the patients with mastocytosis or mast cell activation disorder know, they release so many molecules that affect literally every organ of the body. And whether we can call those allergy of the bladder or allergy of the skin or allergy of the brain uh, might be the very simplistic way of sort of describing you know what they do. They contain about a hundred different uh, chemicals. And unfortunately, we only really know how to deal with only one of them, histamine, and after it has been released by giving antihistamines. We really don't know how to block the, all the other chemicals released, and we know even less what some, if not all, the molecules do actually in the brain, although we'll try to explain what I think uh, happens a little later. Right, because, you know... When I think when people think of um, mast cells and they hear about allergic reactions, um, I think they think of things that are very benign, you know, maybe uncomfortable. Um, but but this is, can be very serious. My daughter doesn't have autism, but she has mast cell activation disorder, and anaphylaxis is an everyday fear. Um, so Correct. you know, it's it's really a, a very you know very serious disorder to have, and that you know. To, isn't necessarily what everyone is going to have, but, um, you know, many children with autism also have true allergies, you know, such as food allergies or environmental allergies. But what's really troubling, I think, for parents, and I went through this with my daughter, is that um, they don't always show up positive on an objective measure test like a blood work for IgE or skin uh, pricking skin testing. So there is a difference between a true IgE food or chemical allergy and what's called a food intolerance, which can be set off by many triggers. So can you just discuss with us the difference between an allergy and a tolerance and what some of the triggers could be? Sure. Um, so in true allergy, we measure this uh, antibody and chemical that our body makes that is protective called immunoglobulin E or IgE. So first we look at the levels of the whole amount of IgE in the blood and we also look for the type of IgE that has been made because the individual has been exposed and sensitized to various either food or environmental or other triggers. And if there is presence of such subspecies of IgE, then we can do skin testing to that particular allergen. And if, in fact, at the place of the injection, you swell up and it becomes red and itchy, then we know you're truly allergic to that. However, the mast cells can be triggered by over 50 different other triggers that have nothing to do with IgE. And in fact, uh, a very important paper was published in the journal Nature about a month ago uh, where they found the specific surface, we call it receptor, uh, that is triggered by most of the other triggers that have nothing to do with IgE. 
So for instance, uh, you can be stung by uh, a wasp and it doesn't have to be through IgE. That will trigger the mast cells. You can take an antibiotic, especially antibiotics or other chemicals used in cancer treatment. Those will trigger the mast cells by themselves. Many patients can go into anaphylactic shock uh, and it's very important, I will stress this, by being exposed to mold. And mold doesn't have to actually be just the spores of the mold that we physically see. Many molds release toxins in the air. They're called mycotoxins that are volatile. We have literally no way of measuring those. And those trigger the mast cells without going through IgE. So for years, patients either with mastocytosis or mast cell activation disorder or now uh, with autism, uh, go to allergists and they tell them basically there's nothing wrong with you and both the patient and the families know there's tons of problems, whether it's eczema, whether it's, uh, you know, twitching of the lungs like asthma, uh, etc. And many families will tell you that even though the children test negative, when the season comes like spring, their whole behavior mm -hmm. changes uh, and it is you know, telltale signs that something obviously is, is going on. What we don't have is a quantitative way of measuring all the other triggers. So for food intolerance, where you have the symptoms without true allergy, some colleagues measure, and in fact many laboratories do that, an other molecule called IgG, and mm -hmm. there are two subclasses, IgG1 and IgG4. That is only qualitative. It doesn't really tell you that you're truly allergic. Uh, and many times you just report the results with like a horizontal bar. And if you go all the way to the right, you know, it's like very red. Uh, the, the bar becomes red as an indication that you're very sensitive. I pay attention if the bar is all the way to the right, because most of the time it turns out to be uh, true. So I urge people to actually do that testing because sometimes just avoiding certain things could make an awful lot of a difference. And what is very for autism is work that came from uh, a professor, uh, Mostafa, and actually at the university in Egypt. Um, about 30% of uh, children on the spectrum have antibodies against their own brain. These are bad antibodies. They're not IgE antibodies. They're mm -hmm. called auto antibodies. And in fact, a company uh, that works now with the University of California at Davis, where this work uh, has been going on, will have a test uh, out within the year, commercial test, where one can measure those antibodies because if they're present, uh, either in the mother or in the child, they usually tend to indicate that if they're present in the mother, the uh, newborn child might have a higher chance of having autism, or if the child has them, then we have to address those. But the reason I'm mentioning this is Dr. Mustafa showed that the only symptom very statistically associated with the presence of these autoantibodies against the brain were allergic reactions. So well, it is therefore telling for us to pay attention to the allergic-like symptoms because that might tell us that there might be presence of those antibodies until such time as the test is commercial and someone can actually use it. Uh, so there's no question that there is some connection between the two. Uh, we just don't have the right tools as of yet, uh, objectively, to call it uh, as fast as we would like to. Yeah, because there's so many gastro issues. 
um, with children with autism. You so many are gluten intolerant or you know dairy intolerant. So you know they're they're definitely um, you know there's the leaky gut. So you know there's definitely a connection that most parents are seeing. Um, you know and and you brought up the. Um, the autoimmune um, situation. Is it, would you consider this to be an autoimmune type disorder, or how would you describe it? How would you um, you name it? Mm-hmm. Uh, a year ago, uh, March, I was actually an invited speaker at the International Congress of Autoimmunity in uh, France, and it was the first time that anybody spoke about um, this being, quote-unquote, an autoimmune problem. Mm-hmm. Now, there were colleagues before me uh, Dr. Van der Water, Dr. Oshwood, Dr. Zimmerman, uh, that have been talking about dysfunctional immunity in autistic children. We were not the first. But I dare say we were the first to actually try to indicate how this autoimmunity, if I can call it that and I'll explain, might come mm-hmm. about. Now, medicine, unfortunately, is uh, limited by its own definitions. So medicine decided years back that a disease is autoimmune if, let's say, in the blood there are what we call anti-nuclear antibodies. So if they're not, we don't call it autoimmune. So we're limited by what to call it. So we started calling it an auto-inflammatory disease, but then uh, medicine decided that something should be called auto-inflammatory if you have a problem with a particular molecule interleukin-1 or IL-1. Mm-hmm. So we're still not sure what to call it. That's why we sort of sometimes called it, um, um, you know, brain immunity sort of dysfunction. But the bottom line is as follows. The brain does not have circulating white blood cells. It protects itself by a cell type called microglia. The mast cells in the brain talk to the microglia. So if the mast cells get activated by either food uh, substances or environmental substances or stress that we've published numerous times, the mast cells then fire and activate the microglia. And the microglia do two very bad things. Uh, One is they release their own inflammatory bad molecules over and beyond what the mast cells release. And they start growing like crazy. So they choke off basically the good connections of the neurons, like the weed chokes off, you know, either the flowers or whatever you want to grow, basically. And when we said that some years back, there was absolutely no proof other than what we were showing and publishing from the laboratory. A month ago, a paper was published in the journal Nature Communications, an excellent journal, um, where they, the colleagues looked at 40-plus brains of children with autism who happen to have died because of drowning or car accidents or whatever you, and in every single brain there was microglia activation. Uh, So now a lot of colleagues start thinking about brain inflammation within the concept of the microglia being activated, and there is a group in Italy and us that have been showing repeatedly that the mast cells activate the microglia and that the microglia end up doing what was found actually in the brain of these children. So I think we're still searching for the right term, mm-hmm. except that it's so difficult to convey this in lay terms. That's why we said, well, well we call it allergy of the brain for now, uh, even though obviously that's not exactly what happens. Exactly. Right. It's in, it's, uh, but right. there's no exactly. question that, that there is activation of 
immune type of cells, both the mast cells and the microglia. And therefore, if we can actually prevent that or limit it, uh, surely uh, there's no question there will be benefit to the children. Right. You know, when you mentioned Dr. Zimmerman, are you talking about Andrew Zimmerman? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, my, I took my daughter to see him many, many years ago. He's fantastic. Actually, yeah, I went to because man. my yeah my daughter, um, not the one with the mask on. My other daughter, um, mm-hmm. when she had a fever, she had pandas, and when she had a fever, yes. she would be completely mm-hmm. without her disorder. Um, and it was just amazing, and he did a lot of work on that. He said it had to do with the release of cytokines, but he also um, really has done so much work on the inflammation of the brain and autism and all of these type of disorders. Yeah, there is actually a gentleman um, out of Texas uh, who has a uh, foundation called N of One. Uh, He happens to be Greek-American, whose son also does very well when he has a fever, Mm-hmm. And he funded a study that Andy Zimmerman did. It was published actually in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was in adult patients. They were selected for doing better when there is fever. Uh, and uh, he showed some positive results using a natural molecule. Um, right. The unfortunate thing is we don't really understand uh, what is going on because there are many more patients that do much worse with fever. And in fact, I know families that said their symptoms of the children started right after uh, a very high fever. And we know fever opens up the blood-brain barrier, and that would allow immune cells to go in. So there's no question that some children do better, some children do worse. We really don't know uh, what is going on. And many times we talk about fever without actually specifying what the temperature is. The reason I'm saying that is if you take the mast cells that we study, and the microglial cells. We usually stimulate them, of course, at a temperature of 37 degrees centigrade, which is the temperature of the body, you know, between 37 37.4. But if we raise the temperature to 39 degrees, they stop firing. We know wow. that. So it could potentially be that when the temperature goes up, all of a sudden the immune system shuts down. But then the question is for how long? Because mm-hmm. you might have that period of things going well, and then, you know, the blood-brain barrier might open up or something else might happen. So I don't think there's anything absolute, but there's definitely, you know, reason to study it. And what is important is how do children actually, you know, sort of present, if you wish. One of the terms that I've been using recently, which is quite a common term with mastocytosis patients as well, is brain fog. Oh, because. Yes. As with mastocytosis patients and as with many of the children that I've seen, you know, brain fog is basically lack of uh, attention, uh, lack of, you know, sometimes even eye contact, um, uh, you know, loss of, you know, shorter memory. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you, all, you almost lose your words, uh, I hear from patients. Oh, uh, abs- Even though you absolutely. know the language, obviously. Uh, My and, daughter and a lot of anxiety the- that goes with it. My daughter so with a mast kind of cell, it has it so severe that her mm-hmm. college professor actually asked her to stay over because she took a test because it can be from five minutes to five minutes, switching Absolutely. on and off, word retrieval. She'll do two very complex math problems, and they'll be perfect, and then the next two she'll get absolutely wrong. It is devastating. So what is the cause of that? Is that also the release of yeah, the... Well, so uh, what happens is that the certain molecules that are released from both the mast cells and the microglia that affect the processing of the information. So they don't really destroy 
the tissue, the brain tissue. They just like, you know, put like, if you wish, you know, cinder blocks on the tracks. So mm-hmm. kind of the train, you know, kind of derails for a while. Um, and in fact, we're writing now an invited review on, on brain fog in the journal called Frontiers in Neuroscience. And uh, what has been amazing is even though we were using this um, dietary supplement that we call NeuroProtec, um, for with uh, a lot of children and with two public studies, uh, there have been a lot of you know benefit. Uh, it turns out that a lot of patients with mastocytosis that have brain fog do extremely well. Um, so we think that's why I said the the, the presentation might be quite similar, except mm-hmm. that the children obviously. Uh, or many of the children don't have functional language, and they cannot exactly tell you what is going on. Uh, Even some of the board members of the Mastocytosis Society, uh, who who are nurses themselves, uh, were absolutely devastated by brain fog. And Mm -hmm. by using NeuroProtec, you know, within a few weeks, they're like back to, to functional again. Yeah, we can't wait. Sorry, we're, we're waiting until the end of the semester for her to try because she the best, you know, with uh, hers is you know pretty severe, and the the thing that's helped her the most was quercetin, which is in it. But I want to start talking about the brain itself. You know, I want to talk about a part of the brain we usually do not discuss. I have never discussed mm-hmm. it on this show, and I've done five hundred interviews. Um, the oh diencephalon. Um, yes. which controls emotions. And I also want to talk about Correct. more commonly part of the brain, the um, hypothalamus. So how right. would an over-release of mast cells, um, as in a mast cell activation dif- disorder, affect these portions mm. of the brain? You know, are there neurological symptoms as well as, you know, the other symptoms? And what type of behaviors might we see? I, so the amazing uh, fact is that most of the mast cells in the brain are found actually in the hypothalamus, and especially the little stalk that connects the hypothalamus with the master gland, the pituitary. So there's got to be a reason why, obviously. And we and uh, Professor Silber at uh, Columbia University have shown that if the mast cells fire, they will activate what we call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So they put us into a like a fight or flight type of reaction. So we're becoming very anxious. Um, you know, we're, we're ready actually to anticipate the worst, if you wish. And the hormones that are released are known to affect behavior tremendously. So behavior could be the way we approach a problem, uh, uh, whether we can actually focus uh, uh, on whatever the task uh, at hand might be. And unfortunately, one of the primary molecules involved is actually histamine. And histamine is is kind of very interesting because we need histamine for alertness, for memory, for consolidation of memory, um, for for motivation. But the moment you push histamine past a certain level, you go into the brain fog area. So it's a very subtle, you can't just say I will block all of histamine because you will lose all the others. And you cannot say, you know, I will flood the body with histamine. And what has happened over the years, uh, and a lady um, has actually this site that you know, the low histamine chef, Mm -hmm. uh, Yasmina, has has done tremendous work in showing, or at least pulling the information from public studies, what foods might contain histamine, because we tend to think of histamine being released only from mast cells or, you know, you're allergic to something or or, uh, 
sensitive and they will release histamine. But many foods contain histamine, and a lot of gut bacteria make histamine. And as you said earlier, so many of the children have gut problems. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine a lot of gut bacteria releasing basically histamine, which of course will enter the brain. And if you start flooding the brain with histamine, you will go into this brain fog uh, kind of mode. And, you know, it, it it just, you know, as you said, it's in every part of the body. I mean, it also, when it gets into the connective tissues, um, it's very painful. And, you know, I think a lot of people that have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia probably also have um, a mast cell disorder. And I find a lot of parents with fibromyalgia have children with autism. So, you know, there's definitely an inflammatory um, connection here. You know, now, mast cells are in the brain. And you have a video that I'm going to put up on um, the website, actually, that is just brilliantly describes all of this, but mast cells um, actually that have now been found in the brain lay directly on nerves, so you know, which can cause nerve damage. So these are called focal allergies. So how do the Correct. focal allergies affect behavior and language? Um, and also, you know, CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormones, um, as you said, are right. involved. So behavior and language, especially when you talk about language and communication, that's a really significant, I think. Uh, absolutely. The reason why we we were the first to use the term focal inflammation is important because I'll give you the example. In multiple sclerosis, we have inflammation in the brain against the myelin sheath that covers the neurons and protects uh, the sort of firing of the neurons. But there we lose function. We lose motor function. Multiple sclerosis patients don't have you know behavioral problems other than the fact that they have you know a horrible disease. Uh, yet in autism, uh, we have inflammation, but we don't lose actually uh, uh, function. I mean, some children might tiptoe on their uh, on their toes. Sometimes, you know, they may flap their hands if they get excited, but that's not really neurologic damage. So the only way to explain these findings, if there were to be destructive molecules released at a particular area, and since the mast cells are plentiful in the hypothalamus that regulates emotions and in the broca area of the brain that regulates language, if the damage were to be done there, then it is the behavior and the language will be affected. To give you an example, um, as, as we all know, muscles contain a molecule called an enzyme, uh, uh, tryptase. They contain mm-hmm. many enzymes, but let's just stay with tryptase. Uh, tryptase is like a meat tenderizer. So just imagine now a neuron that is involved in language all of a sudden being hit by a pocket of a meat tenderizer. Well, for that time, whatever that time is, it might be milliseconds, it might be minutes, it might be days, uh, that part of the brain will be damaged uh, uh, or it will shut down to protect itself. So I can easily explain why the problems occur. What we really don't understand is how some of the triggers get into the brain. So that's where we looked for molecules that might be released by nerve cells themselves. If someone is, let's say, uh, exposed uh, to a horrible situation, if they're upset, then this first hormone, corticotropic releasing hormone, is released. We already published that that triggers the mast cells, that the mast right. cells will release these molecules and that you get actually uh, a cyclic reaction going on. And we published about a month ago that 
in a very large, well, very large, about 47 children or so, we showed that both corticotropin-releasing hormone released under stress and another molecule released from nerves called neurotensin were very high in children of the spectrum as compared to normotypic age and sex match controls. And the two together actually have synergistic action. So if CRH were to trigger the mast cell tenfold uh, and uh, you know neurotensin another tenfold, the two together become, let's say, a thousandfold. I'm just giving you a number just to indicate right. what, it, what it means. And now one of my graduate students who works uh, on microglia shows that the two together also activate microglia, even though we had already published just the effect on the mast cells. And I'm sure there will be you know, additional triggers. I think what is important and what now is emerging or converging, if you wish, is that this is not just a psychiatric disease. Uh, we really exactly. have concrete molecules released from the immune system doing local damage. What we don't know as of yet is why it happens or why it happens more in certain children than in others and to what extent we might be able to block or prevent that. Right, you know, because, you know, that, that's what I said, because stress is a huge trigger, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a monumental stress, but stress Correct. absolutely release, releases histamine. And, um, you know, it, I think that people then think, oh, well, it's psychological. No, it's physical. It's a physical reaction absolutely, to stress-releasing yes. histamine. Um, you know, but, but I think that the problem really comes in that, you know, since you said, I think you said there's over, I thought there were 50, but there's over 80 different molecules um, that I are I just said 50, not to scare everybody. Yes, there are no. more than that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, when they're activated. Um, and, you know, we talked about the microglia and the tryptase. But what really comes into the problem is, as you said, the only, molecule we can target is the histamine. So, Correct. you know, and that's a small portion of it. So do you think that, you know, we're talking about a subgroup, you know, because, you know, with autism, there are, and with most disorders, there are a lot of subgroups. Do you, do you think that most of the children, many of the children, or, you know, a small group of the children may fit into this? And what would parents look for? Because, you know, I didn't know my daughter was allergic to corn and milk and bread and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. everything that, you know, other than air. Right. But when you took it away and then introduced it back, you know, sure. the symptoms came back. So how do parents know? Sure. And, you know, the allergists, really, a lot of them just don't get it. No, they don't. Um, so firstly, there are a number of published studies now, half of them from us, but from other colleagues as well, uh, that say that up to 60% of children on the spectrum have allergic-like problems. So it's not a minor group. Right. Okay. It still leaves another 40% that we probably don't understand, but it's a big group. That's number mm -hmm. one. Number two is that knowing uh, or getting kind of sensitized to the fact that allergies are not just the typical allergist, we don't have to rely uh, just on that testing. So number one, uh, if anybody suspects something, clearly the allergist should do the usual testing. Uh, but I would urge families to do the IgG type of testing, even though it is only qualitative, not quantitative, just to give us an idea. In other words, if someone is gluten insensitive, they'll pick it up. Uh, if they're you know, sensitive to casein, which is in milk or in egg, they'll mm -hmm. pick it up. A and what then one can do is not 
go crazy and remove everything from the diet because it will be, as we know, most of the children on the spectrum are very picky eaters anyhow. Right. And they might be picky eaters because their body might be telling them actually that they just don't tolerate certain things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many times we go crazy, you know, trying to tell the families, oh, you know, try this and try that and try the other thing. And maybe the children are just telling us, look, I cannot tolerate X, Y, and Z. Just pay attention to what I'm doing. And we haven't really done that as much. And a child Uh, that really doesn't have language or has limited language. I mean, you know, we're talking about foods and we're talking about um, environmental factors and we're talking about chemicals. Um, But, you know, something simple as walking into a room with somebody with perfume. Oh, um, my God, yes. Can cause an enormous trigger. Right. Yes. It can be an enormous trigger. Right, right. So what I would say to your question or to to the parents is, uh, look for anything that is different in the behavior of the children. So let's say their stool becomes smelly. Uh, they start having diarrhea. They become more irritated. For instance, children will get very irritated if they eat chocolate. Sometimes if they eat berries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and of course, the irritation will have to be at a time that you know they're not hitting them with you know 100 tasks to do, in which case they will be irritated anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be in a more normal kind of you know setting. Also, I have found for many families that children act like, in the good sense, like animals. They sense differences. They become very sensitive and scared and anxious when the weather changes. Uh, they, they feel the moisture in the air. Uh, you know, many uh, children that eventually started talking and I was kind of, you know, discussing, you know, what bothers them. They will get frightened by just the hitting of the raindrops in the window. Uh, so we just have to be very cautious, especially early on. Uh, If Mm -hmm. they respond to something, you know, uh, and and the response is heightened, let's say they get, you know, bitten by a mosquito and all of a sudden they have, you know, huge swelling, that should be a telltale sign. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they flush, uh, many children will not tell us anything, but you will see their face, their ears, or their torso flashing. That would be a telltale sign to follow uh, kind of the route of at least start examining and you know, eliminating some diet and eliminating other triggers. But as you said, odors are horrible for these children, and they cannot tell you. They also get very easily overloaded with stimuli. So you don't want, you know, a place with like eon lights and, you know, loud noises and people screaming and, you know, the children are kind of fighting with each other. They like a quiet place, you know, fewer uh, uh, triggers. They take longer to process many of the stimuli which is why uh, so i'm so glad you're one of the reasons please. i'm so glad you're here because you're talking about a lot of things that we all just attribute to sensory issues but this really gives you the biological um, cause for sensory issues and also i just want to mention that oftentimes reactions can be delayed um you know you can eat yes. something or be exposed to something and it won't be until six hours later so you don't put them together um cleaning Absolutely, supplies yes. Absolutely, I, you know yes. i i used to use this fa- fantastic i love it um the old english to clean all the wood in my house and mm-hmm. then i realized that every time i used it my daughter was really not feeling really right. So, you know, it couldn't be, parents have to be detectives with this. It's, you know, it's crazy. The weather change was very interesting to me because I didn't know whether to attribute that to just 
um, you know, changes in seasons. But, you know, like autumn, we have mold from the wet leaves. Oh, Um, yes, yes. There could be a a lot of things going on. It's so hard for parents. You know, and there was a very large study, because this really surprised me. There was Mm -hmm. a very large study of over 97,000 children in the United States with eczema. Um, to see mm-hmm. what their association was was with any neuropsychological disorders, and you found right. that many they found that many were also diagnosed with ADHD or autism, and we know that Correct. asthma is asthma is epidemic now. So what is this right. telling us? I mean, we've got the pieces, well, but what is it saying? Yeah. Well, first of all, if no one believes what we are saying or what Andy Zimmerman has been saying, etc., they at least should be paying attention to this. We're talking about a hundred thousand children. Uh, they have eczema, and eczema, you know, the proper term is called atopic dermatitis, but let's say skin irritation in general. Well, mm-hmm. for over 20%, if not more, of these children to have either attention deficit uh, disorders or autism is immense. Um, yes. And, and therefore, it, it's telling us that there is an association. Uh, you know, we still don't know. It's, you know. it's not exactly chicken and the egg because autism doesn't cause eczema, so it can only go the other way around. Right, exactly. And in this study, they accounted for the fact that if you, know, if you eat, you're going to be miserable. But that's not going to cause autism. It's not going to cause attention deficit. You know, you can scream and, and scratch yourself to death. And, you know, you might not, you know, be as attentive because, you know, you're, you're focusing on your, you know, your skin problems. But to have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism is just unbelievable. And there is a lady professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, uh, here in Massachusetts, who is not a biologist, but she actually uh, uh, had been writing for the last two years that some of the um, herbicides that are used widely all over the world, uh, I'm not going to point the finger to one, uh, according to her, they have a lot to play. And, you know, some of these herbicides trigger mast cells, we know that, and some mm-hmm. of these herbicides cannot be washed off, uh, no matter how much you wash, you have to really peel the fruit. Um, so who knows, you know, how much of this volatile and how much it actually affects us, but just imagine the first part of the body that will be exposed to all of this will be either your nose or your skin. Mm-hmm. So it may well be that we're just dumping stuff in our environment much faster than we understand the biology of And, you know, now we're kind of, you know, asked to pick up the pieces, unfortunately. And the mast cell is literally, and it's like the canary of of the mines. Uh, It it reacts to so many different things. It's telling us something is not good for us. Uh, And we should really be paying attention to the fact that there's so much asthma, there's so much eczema, there's so much allergy, even though we have, you know, better inhalers, we have, you know, vacuum cleaners, we have... Uh, you know, uh, air conditioners, and yet things are going worse. Right. So the two are going together, and and really, it's almost an epidemic on both levels. Oh, it's 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 horrendous, and the problem is that you know, oftentimes, it's especially I would assume with a child that's nonverbal or autistic, it's not that overt. Um, you know, but there are parents that um, you know see that their children have it. And by the way, it doesn't. The child doesn't necessarily. I I may be wrong, but I do, I see that sometimes. I know in my family, the child doesn't have to have eczema, but you'll find somebody else in the family has eczema. Um, well, a, a number of studies were published showing that if the mother during pregnancy 
has an autoimmune disease, especially allergies and psoriasis, the chance of having a child uh, uh, with autism is about four to six times higher. Wow. Uh, so we already know that, which means that something is happening you know, during uh, development. And of course, if this creates, as I think it does, a susceptibility, mm-hmm. then when the children are hit with real triggers, quote-unquote real, meaning outside uh, you know, the womb, then things right. become worse. Now, one thing that I, I would like to mention, if I could, because mm-hmm. it is actually World Autism Day, and it happened actually uh, just two days ago, but the U.S. Patent Office uh, awarded me actually the first patent ever on uh, uh, diagnosing and treating autism. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it, it just We just got it. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we know how to treat autism or we know exactly how to diagnose it. But the Patent Office obviously recognized that a lot of what we've been saying and the publications we have and, you know, evidence that we included in the patent application that is not published, uh, you know, obviously as of yet, um, indicates that what we've been talking about today is really on the right track, which allows us to hopefully seek for more funding to basically search and possibly, you know, prevent and treat uh, eventually. Now, the NeuroProtect wow. that a lot of children have been using is just the beginning. We are already uh, actually uh, close to having a molecule uh, that is even much better than quercetin and luteolin that is in NeuroProtect that, in addition, has the wonderful ability to protect the neurons. It has the ability that we call brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF-like activity. So now we have a molecule which is not available yet that not only will block the microglia and the mast cells, but at the same time will protect the neurons from whatever damage may already be going on because the process has already started. So we're very excited that the, the door has opened up in many ways for basically you know, better discovery and hopefully you know, better uh, treatment approach for these children. This I, I am like literally in tears. <laughs> I really am. You're so that kind. Is, no, because we we just you know, put it up is, as that you is know. Huge. Yeah, as you know, I, I have two just educational non profit websites. One is called autismfreebrain dot org and the other is called brain hyphen gate dot org. And this information along with the three most important publications on microglia and mast cells and inflammation of the brain uh, are up now on the website as of today, along with the two, uh, the pattern that I mentioned. So people can just look it up. And I would imagine this treatment is going to be good for someone like my daughter with mast cell activation. Oh, absolutely. With or without. It will be the best for brain fog in general. Oh, that's Um, a big It's a natural molecule. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're just trying to find out uh, who might be able to basically purify it in large quantities in a reasonable uh, affordable price to make it available. Wow. So it well, might take I, about a year or so, but I'm very hopeful. Well, that's just, that's huge. I mean, it's just huge. And my Thank next you. question was going to be, what is your latest research telling us and what can, you know, parents do? Because, uh, you know, a lot of children, I think something else that parents don't realize is that, you know, listen, sometimes children need medication. There is just no doubt about it. Of course. But what they may not realize is that these medications have fillers. Some of the fillers are corn. Oh, my God. Um, there are many fillers. And if you have a child like mine, she can't take Benadryl. 
um, even though she gets severe allergic reactions because Benadryl has corn. We have to have it compounded. So it's really important that parents really weed this out, really try to unravel it. Please go to um, Dr. Theoretes' websites because they're so informative, and I know how frustrated you are as a parent because I know you see things that I saw and nobody listens, but you really just can't give give up and you have to keep going. So, Dr. Theoretes, what would you say to parents um, that, are, that are facing these complexities? That there is definitely hope in the near future, that there is definitely decent approach now to reduce, to a large extent, uh, symptoms by addressing at least allergic-like uh, problems. And uh, there are natural uh, uh, approaches, including you know the luteolin and the quercetin and the neuroprotec, to sort of hold us over uh, until sort of the next uh, discovery. But I've seen a lot of children do better by just taking these uh, basically steps. And one thing that we don't talk very much about, I'd just like to finish with that, is there certain heavy metals that are now showing up as being quite important in causing neurologic problems, especially cadmium and aluminum. So we should be looking out um, uh, for, you know, possibly measuring, especially in children that have neurologic problems in addition to behavioral problems, measuring heavy metals in general, because if they're high, we can detoxify them. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, well known that we can detoxify. So we shouldn't be missing uh, that possibility if, in fact, it's true in certain children. It's, you know, it's just so complex because, you know, like they say, if you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there. All right, I thank you for the work that you do, you know, for the mast cell disorders and for autism. Um, you know, you give, you give parents hope. You're giving me hope. Um, so why don't you tell us where people can find you, your websites? So uh, my personal website is www, of course, one word, must sellmaster.com must sellmaster.com and then the two nonprofits autismfreebrain.org and brain-gate.org and if you go to YouTube uh, there are numerous uh, presentations uh, I've made over the years uh, one that is very informative is um, uh, an interview by a British reporter called Polly, and I think the title is Polly Interviews Dr. Theo. Uh, it's it's quite long, but it's very informative, and it goes through a lot of what we discussed uh, today. It's about two years old, but, uh, you know, it's I the, watched the basics that last are there. Night. Yes, it was excellent. Mm-hmm. I watched it last night. Well, Dr. Theoretis, we you. have to um, end it, but I can't thank sure. you enough. And uh, please keep us posted on any new developments. We'd love to have you back on. We absolutely will. And most of the publications I mentioned can be found on the websites and be downloaded for free. Yeah, there's a lot of Thank you so much for having me on the program again. Well, thank you. And everyone, it's not just awareness, it's acceptance, and it's knowledge. So, um, you know, I wish everybody a lot of success with their children, and I thank you for joining me. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com, and have a great night, everyone. Good night.